Welcome to the Humane Roundup Podcast, where we share all the exciting stories about animal cruelty investigations, dangerous animals, and amazing rescues. Find out what goes on inside of animal shelters and all the current trends in the animal welfare industry. Now, here is your host, Daniel Edinger. And our co-host, Ashley Bishop. What's going on, Bishop? Hello, how are you? I can't believe this is episode 80. I know. That is unreal. Thanks for being part of a lot of these episodes. We really love having you on the show. Hey, I've had a good time. I'm glad to be here with you. I hope you're having a good time and make the best time of it. Yeah, I am. And we have a great show coming up here today, episode 80. Don't forget to check out our social media pages, the Humane Roundup on Facebook and Instagram, and check out H.O. Bishop, that's Humane Officer Bishop on both socials. And then I'm there as well as Animal Protection Officer Daniel uh we'd, we'd love to hear from you i've been getting some feedback lately it's been good good stuff have had some people recently reach out to me about just the career in general and just trying to you know steer people in the right direction you know i i've really been on this life's work phrase recently you know finding your life's work and for me this is this has been my life's work for well, at least the last 12 years 10 years somewhere in that range and i'm just grateful that i can share that with uh, people that are interested and, and want to learn more. Uh, you need to share the other news that you shared with me and on social media for those that maybe didn't see it. Um, Top 20 ooh. podcasts. Oh, right. oh come on. <laughs> so feed spot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what are we talking about? Feed spot. Um, they sent us an email saying that they did some, research and they put us uh well they they had 20 podcasts with the this type of theme uh humane work i guess you could say whether it's animal welfare in the sense that we do it or animal welfare in the sense of you know uh, food producing animals that type of stuff and so uh, they put a list of 20 together you can see the photo on our page uh, we can send a link if anyone's in, in, interested uh, but they did rank us number one uh, out of 20, well, number one to follow in 2021. So thanks for all of our listeners for making that happen. Um, <laughs> that's good stuff. And then you were going to briefly share something about some cats. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I'm going to change a lot of information in here, but, you know, I, we talked about it before about, you know, being able to investigate cases and, you know, the talking to the people involved. <laughs> I mean, crazy story. I removed some cats from a house. They were in pretty bad shape. Like I could visibly see that they were in bad shape, right? Through the window. And that's sure. hard to do with a cat. Um, I got the owner on the phone who proceeded to tell me that four days after I had removed the cats, that they had gone back to their home and were checking on them. And I'm like, oh, really? So on this date, you were there? Oh, yeah. And said, okay, well, how did they look? And, oh, they look good. And I put food in this bowl and water in that bowl. And I left it in this location. And I'm like, really? Do tell me more. Hmm. Until finally, I'm like, 
I don't believe you. And they're like, well, why not? I said, because I've already removed your cats four days before this. Wow. <laughs> like, wow. how incredibly dumb do you have to be? So does that, is that in your city, does that also become an abandonment as well as a neglect or welfare issue? It's, that one's a tough one. I can possibly fight for it because the property manager is also putting the property up as abandoned. Um, But they're claiming to have gone back to the property to care for them. Um, It'll be hard. And I eventually got them to surrender them to me. Um, But I definitely have neglect. Well, that... And we can table this conversation, but the whole, so the abandonment time here in our city is 72 hours of basically of of no care, but let's be honest, like people can leave cats for a while versus dogs, right? Cats have litter boxes. You can set up multiple boxes. You can set up like slow feeders and water, you know, water things as well. So, but let's, let's table that discussion. We can open up a rabbit hole there. Um, I, I say we introduce our next guest and kind of get that that role. And I'm excited to welcome Dr. Philip Tedeschi. He's a clinical professor at the School of Social Work for Denver University. Thanks for joining us, Phil. Yeah, well, thanks. uh, Thanks for inviting me to join you. That was an interesting story to get us started. I I could not (laughs) believe that I was able to get that kind of information. And fortunately, I didn't get it recorded, but, you know, it'll just go in my report, very well documented. <laughs> Definitely. Ashley always has those good stories, man. I tell you, it's fun hearing you... that. Well, Phil, let's jump into it. If, if you wouldn't mind just letting our listeners know kind of your background and uh, maybe introduce yourself a little bit so they have an idea of what, like, they're probably like, who is this guy and why is he on the, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people know you, but then some of our listeners may not. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure there's lots of people who don't know me, but and maybe they're asking like, what would a social worker be doing on this particular uh, podcast? So, well, my my name's Phil Tedeschi, and I have for um, most of my professional career uh, been interested in the intersection of between people and animals, and that's really been kind of the core areas of my study. In fact, my original uh, my original focus was um, referring refers to a concept that I call bioaffiliation, or really our our relationship with the living world. And so I became really interested in this area. And uh, a lot, kind of the long story short is that as a social worker, a professional social worker, and a licensed social worker, um, I ended up at the University of Denver, where our students had expressed an interest in you know, looking at the role that animals might play in human health. And that was an area that I had studied and was asked if I would teach the very first course that ultimately resulted in the development of a specialized uh, certificate program that allows social workers to have a specialization in human animal connection related issues. And that in turn resulted in the development of an institute called the Institute for Human Animal Connection and you can find us on, you know, uh, uh, if you search that term, you'll find it. We also have a uh, active Facebook presence and other social media. So if you want to learn more about our 
Institute, you can find out about that that way. And I've been the executive director of that institute um, and was the founder of that institute. Um, we'll post a, a link there too in our show notes. So if you're listening and, and you know don't want to write it down or anything like that, they can check there as well. Yeah, yeah, please do. I mean, our, our activities directly relate to a lot of the work that is being done in communities on behalf of protecting animals. And and we have an active research agenda as well as academic programs and outreach programs and that sort of thing. So, so for the most part, I've been an academic, um, although a portion of my career, I've also been a practicing psychotherapist. So I've been a licensed uh, social worker in here in Colorado. And as one part of that served as the psychological advisor to the humane law enforcement team in the fourth judicial district here in Colorado. That's some amazing stuff. And you talked about briefly, like in the intro about why would a social worker uh, be on this podcast? And, you know, we've, we've really talked about it. We, we had some episodes a, a little while back. So if you're listening and want to check those out, uh, we did a peer support episode where it talks about our own mental health in the profession. But what I think we're going to do today is talk about some of the behaviors and characteristics of maybe some of the offenders that we deal with in the community as well. And that's a really interesting topic. And then we have some other questions too, and just other topics to, to jump into, uh, which it, it's really just fascinating to me. We, the last episode we had, uh, the American, American, the Animal Legal Defense Fund, <laughs> it could be the American Legal Defense Fund, <laughs> the Animal Legal Defense Fund uh, published their top states for animal cruelty laws or animal protection laws. And some of those to jump into one of our next topics are required mental health evaluations and then treatment uh, plans as well. And, and so is that what is that something that IHAC does or is that something you do on your own? And, and if we could kind of tell people what the forensic animal um, the forensic animal maltreatment evaluations are and what that looks like. Yeah, yeah, I'd be glad to tell you about that. That's really been kind of a big portion of my career uh, focus over the years. So I'll just kind of reel back to a, a little bit back into my path. So as a part of my professional work, I worked as a therapist with high risk individuals, uh, served as a evaluator, a forensic evaluator and treatment provider in Colorado for persons who engaged in um, various kinds of sexual behavioral problems, including illegal sexual behavior, and also worked pretty extensively with violence and interpersonal and intimate partner violence. And and as a feature of my interest in human-animal connection, I was starting to be asked pretty frequently to do uh, specialized evaluations for the courts on persons who had, who had engaged in animal cruelty. And so over the years, I began to refine a, a strategy called um, the Forensic Animal Maltreatment Evaluation. It is uh, designed to parallel the kinds of evaluations we would do on other high-risk individuals, potentially, or at least persons who are engaging in inter various kinds of interpersonal Violence, because as we've, you know, come to um, suspect that there are there are parallels, there are correlations that exist between uh, forms of you know persons who engage in human violence and and persons who engage in various kinds of animal violence. Although I hope we we come back to that topic because I'd like to talk a little more about 
the nuances of that, that premise, but ultimately uh, wrote and published a, a protocol for doing forensic animal maltreatment evaluations. We now do those out of the University of Denver's Graduate School of, Profession of Forensic Psychology, where we're training um, PhD level evaluators um, to provide these court these evaluations to the courts. And in Colorado, we're supposed to be providing um, evaluations, specialized evaluations to the courts on persons who are convicted of animal abuse prior to when prior to their sentencing. And um, and our laws, you know, expect that. Unfortunately, we just simply don't really have the infrastructure or the systems that fully support this. But it is an important area for us to, you know, to be pursuing, I think, in as as an area to both, you know, both support communities and protect animals. And then I'll just mention one additional thing that I think is is important is that as a part of doing these evaluations, um, in the field of, of risk assessment or when we're trying to do any kind of evaluation on persons engaged in dangerous or harmful behaviors, typically when we evaluate human beings in other areas of, of interpersonal violence, we have risk assessment tools that are empirically designed. They, they are intended to measure the capacity for things like reoffense and the levels of risk, which allows the courts to be more sure-footed about the sentences or disposition in these cases. And in, in the area of animal protection, we have, we have no risk assessments at all for, for those individuals. So starting about over about 10 years ago, I started designing an instrument uh, we refer um, we refer uh, to this as the animal abuse risk assessment tool, and it's built off of the original um, risk factors that Dr. Randall Lockwood um, had originally articulated, um, although hadn't done research on, but had seen in enough cases that he identified about twenty or so risk factors. We're now up to about um, sixty-five. Um, identify of specific factors that we now look at across um, a number of different matrices, including what we call static risk and dynamic risk. And static risks are the very things that predict risks that we can't really change. So that might include something like um, the numbers of victims that an individual has. We wouldn't be able to change that number uh, as a feature of intervention or treatment. And then the dynamic factors are things we can change, things like um, a substance abuse problem or depression or any number of- Anger management, maybe something like that. Totally, yeah. Anger would totally fall into that category. And so those are things that we can actually identify and then we're um, you know, more likely to be able to um, make- changes in somebody's risk by identifying these dynamic factors, right? These are the things that we can in fact improve. The other thing that social work, you know, going back to why social workers, um, social workers do a lot of their work built on the premise of strength-based approaches, or sometimes we even refer to it as prevention science. Um, and really what we're looking at there would be recognizing that what we sometimes call protective factors or resiliency factors are also predictors of risk. So for example, 
growing up in a home with, um, you know, you know, adequate um, support or adequate nutrition or um, good parenting or access to schools or other stabilizing factors like that, good healthcare, those ultimately are considered literally prevention, you know, dynamics that influence um, risk as well. So we're also wanting to measure in these cases, the presence of protective factors, because those also predict outcomes. So the bottom line, I guess, is that for quite some time, you know, over about the last almost, I would say, 20 years, we've been working on, on building better strategies for evaluations and risk assessment. If people are really interested in this and, and are geeky enough to read books about it, um, there is a book called Animal Maltreatment that it has been published and that actually has a chapter describing these specific evaluations. So going on those evaluations and talking about that a little bit more, it, are those assessments and things only done, and I know only a few states are doing it, but only if a crime has been committed or can that be something that can be incorporated in earlier as a prevention to remove the animal before the crime is committed and things like that? Yeah, I mean, it's a very good question and it's something we're really interested in right now. In fact, we're working um, really in collaboration right now with the Animal Legal Defense Fund to develop a formalized training that will be available to criminal justice professionals and, Fantastic. Uh, and animal, yeah. animal protection officers. And this will be a course that's run right out of our institute. Um, and what is what we'll be getting at in that very training is, an, is that examination, like how far up the river could we go to prevent animal abuse um, to begin with? And, and we have reason you know, to ask that question because we're really interested in this very same question in things like child maltreatment, right? Or, or, or virtually any other kind of violence. We're really interested not in waiting till somebody has created a victim or is in, in the criminal justice system themselves or a need, you know, needs to be arrested or incarcerated. We really would like to see early intervention if possible. And so there are some ways to think about that question. It can be uh, tricky, right? I mean, these are this is kind of the depth of, of going into the depth of prevention science um, and, and concepts that support good outcomes. So what we consider kind of risk and resilience, um, you know, measurements. Um, if you think about risks being defined as things that would predict bad outcomes and, um, you know, um, resilience or prevention factors being things that would, would predict good outcomes, we know a lot of what those are actually, and from studying these areas and, and social, the social sciences has been studying this for a long time. We know, for example, the impact, exact impact of what happens when you put a liquor store in a community, you know, and um, those sorts of things. What happens when you, um, you know, build um, highways, you know, through somebody's neighborhood, how that impacts health outcomes and, and those sorts of things. So I think this is a new area for us to explore a prevention orientation and, and push it as far up the river as we possibly can. 
I think it's fascinating just in general from a, from a boots on the ground perspective, you know, being in a community and trying to take an approach where we, you know, go to schools and provide humane education. That's one piece of the puzzle, but, you know, coming into communities that may be, you know, uh, low socioeconomic communities, they, they might be food deserts. Uh, they, they may have just issues upon themselves that, that, you know, the, the normal person may not be able to relate to in situations like that. So is the 30 minutes that I talk to students in school really going to make an impact? And I, I don't know, I, I kind of waver on that. I, I really try to take that approach uh, into the field. So if outside of the humane education program that we may have, and then the interactions that I actually have in the field, because I feel at that point that the face-to-face interaction and the word of mouth that is generated from that can, can really go a long way. I, th- I agree with you. And, and I, I would encourage you to think about that work as just as important as any other work that you do, frankly. And, and I think we have some good reasons to believe that, you know, when we've studied outcomes for at-risk um, behavior in youth, one of the things that became clear is that um, we, lo- we looked at, at this through a, a model called positive youth development. And positive youth development is built off of some pretty basic principles, but they're, they're important. And, and they often include things like um, somebody who really shows an interest in them, you know, and somebody who takes time, um, you know, to be a mentor and somebody who communicates with them as though they have the capacity to understand and learn and to engage them in, in purposeful activity. You know, I mean, we have a notorious history in Colorado with things like Columbine shooting mm-hmm. and, you know, have, and have, you know, on the internet, the Columbine RPG massacre game that you can download and play a first, you know, a first person shooter video game where Dylan Klebold keeps score for you as you kill your fellow students in the cafeteria. Um, the same part of the brain that is activated by those first person shooter games is also activated by humane education. Hmm. And it's the same part of the brain that's engaged. And the, the more compelling it is, the more interesting it is, the more um, relevant it becomes to their everyday lives, obviously the more, you know, the more impact it'll have but you're competing with, you know, youth who are, who are literally overrun by problematic ways in which they're learning about, you know, their communities and the world around them through things like those video games. Now, I'm not saying all video games are bad. I'm just trying to suggest that um, don't give up on humane education because it's equally relevant and equally important and changing, you know, perspectives and, you know, teaching uh, kindness and positive youth development shows us that when we have those in the, in the lives, you know, when we have good, you know, resources, relationships, opportunities in the lives of those youth, as compared to youth with what we sometimes call adverse childhood experiences or the ACEs is, is the acronym that's used. And the ACEs are all the problematic things that happen in children's lives. ACEs predict bad outcomes, right? So this, this is not, shouldn't be too big a surprise, right? That, that when we expose children to kindness and humane treatment of animals and humane treatment of other people uh, and give them the tools to feel like they're part of that 
you know, that, that opportunity and build a community around them that really truly is inclusive and responsive um, to uh, these goals, then we see kids that will have better outcomes, no doubt about it. For the people that are interested in, um, you know, these trainings and stuff, are you, is the Institute doing that at all online? Yeah. Because yeah. you, you guys are the only ones right now in this program, right? Yeah, that's, well, that's right. I mean, there's, you know, there's obviously a lot of materials out there that I think are relevant and valuable, but if somebody is looking for um, high level training or in-depth training, we do have a lot of different types of program focused on the human animal bond, some specific to working with horses, cats, and dogs. Uh, we also have a humane educator certificate program called Raising Compassionate Children. Um, and which we hope that Daniel will become an instructor in soon. I would love to. Is that an yeah. invitation right yeah. there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> consider that a job a job offer. I would um, love to, Phil. Yeah. I'm telling your boss. <laughs> yeah. no, we, no, we really, uh, we really um, believe that. Uh, you know, the director of our humane education program, Dr. Sarah Bexell, is the former. Um, not former, I guess she's continuing to be actually working with them, uh, did ran the humane education program for the Chengdu giant panda research base in Chengdu, China, um, and now has been with our faculty for about, I think, six years and uh, heads up our, our humane education programs. So you might check that out. But the program I was telling you about relative, that we're doing with the Animal Legal Defense Fund and and with other collaborators as well, should uh, is not open yet, but it, we hope to have it operational by the end of the summer. And this would be the kinds of things that we hope would be useful professional development for persons who encounter animal cruelty as a feature of their work. And, uh, and this will go into a lot of depth around examination of, of a lot of the laws and the perspectives legal perspectives and social science perspectives on strategies for informing the work we do. And I'll just give you maybe one quick example. Um, you know, if you took a, any, almost any case that you would encounter where, you, where somebody's charged with animal cruelty, one of the things that I found as an evaluator is that often they fell into um, one of three categories, sometimes with crossover in, in some of them. And those categories were, you know, a criminogenic kind of category that we are familiar with. And often, you know, the criminal justice system and at times the animal welfare system thinks about these individuals largely through this lens of the criminogenic factors. But we also saw, and, and, and in fact, um, I, I will just say, that in many cases, um, that's not the most predominant of, the, of these typologies. The other categories that we routinely see are, are these psychogenic and traumagenic, meaning mental health problems and trauma-related problems. And then when we see the combination of, of those, you know, mixed with ish, other issues like joblessness or poverty or other drivers of instability, um, we can see a lot of risks that happen for people and they also place animals at risk. So, you know, to a large degree, things like our collectors of animals or persons who 
um, many of the persons engaged in various kinds of criminal neglect um, are in fact persons that we would find have significant either mental health problems or, or other, other factors. And through these evaluations, I really think we're at a point where we don't have a mystery so much as to why animal cruelty occurs um, when we can do comprehensive evaluations. I think we can really help the courts be very sure-footed on what they're looking at. And if we do that, that's the best way to improve outcomes for animals, you know, that our likelihood of seeing the lowest risk of, of recidivism will come from actually addressing the underlying drivers and causes of these cases. And so that's why we're big proponents of these evaluations and believe they should be done prior to disposition, um, allowing for a real treatment plan or strategy to be developed um, on, in terms of how to handle these cases. So, I, go ahead, oh, Ashley. I was just going to say, you're saying that it, you know, you don't have to just be in social work to, for this program that's coming. It, it could be, you know, us as ACOs, human officers, whatever, that could also take this program, correct? Totally. Yeah, it's and actually then, a specific, I mean, that's really, we hope, we hope animal control officers will find it very helpful. Okay. And then, yeah. Well, and a follow-up to that would be, would we then be um, certified, if you will, to be able to do the risk assessment and present that? Or does that still need to go through somebody with a much higher degree than myself? <laughs> yeah, well, I think you're asking a, a question that we're asking ourselves. So we're really interested in, in as early intervention as we can. And we also, and we know that animal protection officers are often faced with challenging, uh, you know, decision-making about how to approach various cases that they encounter in the community. So, you know, by the time somebody gets a full evaluation, a full forensic animal maltreatment evaluation, that is somebody who's already been arrested, um, you know, and we're looking at disposition and those evaluations are done by trained evaluators. Um, but what we're really asking is, you know, when I was talking about the risk assessment tool, the animal, the animal risk assessment tool, we acronym as the ARAT, um, or even some of these risk factors that we identify have identified um, from the research and from the literature that we should be looking at, there's no reason why we couldn't build those into a field-based um, checklist that you could use to help you make a decision as to whether you're looking at a higher risk or lower risk individual, and potentially even what are some of the you know, strategies that you might use to resolve those cases most effectively. So I think that's our next um, endeavor, but we've really had to go into some depth um, in order to really feel like we knew what we were talking about in that area. And, mm -hmm. But I think now we really could make that something that could be used in the field. And think about, we are a lot of times we're the first responder to these situations. That's if right. you, and I don't know if you've, if you've seen the case, it's a pretty graphic case where a 12 year old in Mississippi set a dog on fire and admitted to setting a dog on fire. And the, there's no actual, how do I say this the right way? There, there's no punishment for his crime because of his age and the only true 
the only true intervention, if any, is going to come through an investigation with CPS, Child Protective Services. Mm -hmm. And so he would be a great candidate to go through this risk assessment and to understand the pattern of behavior and then to put him in a program um, in a way to uh, mitigate any future issues. Because as you mentioned uh, just briefly ago, recidivism uh, can be high in certain scenarios without any sort of intervention. And so I think us being that boot on the ground, that first contact, if you will, uh, really gives us an opportunity to share that stuff uh, with the appropriate people and try to get you know the help needed as early as possible. Well, I completely agree with you, Daniel. And you know, and I got to say, since I'm not on any, I'm not working for any animal protection organization. I'll just tell you that I, it's long overdue for animal animal protection specialists to see that position um, elevated in terms of both its compensation, its expectations for for training. Um, you know, not unlike some of the complexities we're seeing in our current society around policing in general, these are difficult jobs to do. And they're difficult decisions to make, you know, that often affect, um, may have major implications. Um, and, and so I really believe that, you know, animal protection specialists are a critical part of, you know, a broader conversation around how to support um, really healthy communities. And I think if we took that approach, one of the things that we would find is that, you know, we do have these cases like the ones you've described and many other kind of, you know, I would describe as, as kind of high level, um, you know, kind of horrible, horrible cases that it often drive the policy and laws for animal protection work but to a large degree, um, the other area that we have to become even more competent, maybe even better at than responding to the highest risk clients is how do we respond to the fact that we literally have nearly you know, 400 million people in the United States with companion animals. You know, Two thirds of those houses um, children are living in. Um, that pets are, are a part of the love story of, a, of the United States and that you know, interacting with these communities with a recognition that we really want to support people to be successful in human-animal connection. I really think that animal protection specialists are likely to also be the, the best opportunity for things like pet education, right, and caring for animals in, in unique and, and powerful and positive ways. This is the real social, the real opportunity for social capital that come, can come out of our shared work. Absolutely. And the, I guess this subject or this next next topic to kind of segue from the, what you mentioned here a second ago is the current state of law enforcement in this country and the perspective that is out there. And, and Ashley, you, you and I often joke around on the show that, you know, our profession has, where are we at? 26 different titles, 27 yep. different titles to define us. <laughs> Uh, and, and then in addition, so that's just like a microcosm of our profession, right? Because the standard is the standard. There's not, there's not like you have to be certified, you know, you have to go through a certain, like with police, police departments, the, the post certification that you have to do before you can uh, work in that role. Our job in some agencies throughout the country to this day 
you know, you're given keys in a vehicle and just go get them. There's no formal training whatsoever. Be safe. Don't, don't, don't hurt yourself. Don't hurt anybody else. But in other, other cities, there is a standard right there here in Denver. We did get reclassified recently to an appropriate um, pay for what's expected of us, uh, which I'm sure we, we all appreciate, but how do we, I think, so part of, I think this is a two point or two part question. So how do we educate our community that we're more than A, the dog catcher, but then B, how do we educate our elected officials and our, you know, executives that, that may work in some of these towns and cities that we're, again, we're more than the dog catcher. We are so much more for the community and that they should, they should take these positions seriously. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good, a very good question. And, you know, I got to tell you that, I mean, hopefully I'm, I may not be answering your question exactly, but I don't think the risk is that the community just might minimize the significance as a dog catcher. I think the really bigger question is this tension that exists in our own society around, around the value of animals and whether or not we want to have a real dialogue about what kind of relationships we could have with other non-human animals. And, and then I become really interested in the role of animal protection from that, within that context. And I, you know, I guess what I, you know, what I mean by that would be that, you know, there's so few places for persons to really have an interaction with a professional who knows animal well-being and animal welfare as, you know, in the same context that could occur in their interactions with you. I mean, you're going to know your own neighborhoods and communities and cities probably better than others. Maybe, you know, even arguably um, in a very different and more valuable way than their own veterinarians, because you're seeing, you know, the conditions under which people and animals are living together. I, so I so I think it's a it's a tricky one. I mean, we know that in our society right now, that there are some very real reasons to be concerned about the challenges of policing and the systemic racism that exists within within law enforcement and the criminal justice complex. And and we also in this area, in particular with animal cruelty, we have absolutely no evidence um, that incarceration is in fact a effective um, strategy for making, you know, we're not gonna incarcerate our way to a kinder, more humane community really. Um, so I, I really look at, you know, that possibility that, you know, in the long run, you know, what we want from animal protection specialists is a real relationship with the communities that they're working in. And then to find the most effective ways to get as far upstream as we can to ensure things like access to resources, to ensure good information, to, to try to you know, be out ahead of these issues. And I know that that's you know, not always been the strategy in animal protection work that often we you know, are waiting until there actually is a problem. And it's reflected in our laws. A lot of our laws are directed at once a cruelty issue occurs even the court advocates programs like Desmond's Law and, and the one, you know, many of the programs that have been named after some of our most horrific animal cruelty cases, I think all reflect in a way 
you know, a necessary awareness, but probably not the right place to um, resource or, or even consider our best opportunity of protecting animals. That's excellent stuff. And, you know, I, I find that uh, this is going to be a sensitive subject here and, and, and I'll try to try to be as conscious of it as possible, but we live in a society where uh, people are okay with um, mass farming of animals that are right. put on their dinner plate. And so how can we, you know, how can we expect them to be okay with, you know, someone being cruel to their animal and in that aspect, and then there be a punishment or, and, and the punishment doesn't necessarily have to be incarceration, but, you know, if someone feels a certain way about um, or turns a blind eye in that sense to uh, what goes on in the animal farming community, then, you know, how can they necessarily say that, you know, what's happening in their own community is unjust, I guess. Yeah, I know. I'm, and, you know, I, I appreciate you bringing it up and giving that a voice. I mean, it's troubling. It's a, it's troubling from a, uh, a justice standpoint because it, you know, it emanates from, you know, from an economic framework and a protected framework, right? I mean, those, those animals and the treatment of those animals is, a, is considered protected by our own system. So, you know, and I'm not suggesting that in some form or fashion that other animals are not deserving of protection, just the opposite. I, I mean, I'm interested, I'm interested in the broad question of biodiversity protection. You know, even here in Denver, you know, things like the city's decision and determination of rounding up its Canadian geese and culling them um, because they're bothering, you know, people in their city parks um, are, are other examples. You know, these are birds that would, by federal law, have been protected by the Migratory Bird um, Act, and yet the city of Denver can ask for a waiver to round them up and kill them, and yeah. and lar largely because people don't like goose poop on their, you know, when they're running on the sidewalk or, you know, sunbathing in the park. You know, I want to ask questions more like, you know, when you go to a park, you want to see an animal. Um, you know, would we expect to share our parks with other non-human animals, especially if we're going to do things like planting the very grass that they love, building ponds that they can swim in, you know, removing all the predators so that they can raise their babies safely, and then going like, oh, it's pretty inconvenient that we have all these geese here. Um, I, I think there's a bigger question there, right? That that society has to grapple with if we're going to have by any level of, of uh, protection for animals you know, across our planet. And I hope the, the future of animal protection officers is being part of that agenda, um, part of that asking those hard questions, advocating for animals not necessarily feeling like they're just an, only having to enforce um, laws. Well, and I, I think with what you guys are trying to do with bringing into that that mental health aspect and, you know, including being able, will there be maybe a component to that to teach how to teach as far as, you know, you're, you're talking about a more of a problem-oriented policing instead of a community policing right. and, and trying to change that dynamic more into community policing which is that that 
reaching out and teaching, especially the kids who, you know, probably aren't getting taught well at home how to appropriately um, manage animals and stuff. Will that be a component of that training? Well, it's definitely a part of, I, I would say, our humane our humane education certificate and, you know, literally teaching teachers and parents, probably our best, one of our best resources would be accessing parents because of what I mentioned earlier, the prevalence, the single most amazing thing is the prevalence of animals in our communities. I mean, it is astounding. You know, we have more animals in this country than all the people in Europe. Um, You know, I mean, so, it, it's simply, uh, you know, something that's impossible to, con, you know, kind of put it, wrap your brain around. In fact, from the health promoting standpoint, it might be the very biggest mental health strategy we have as well, that our companion animals, especially during COVID periods, have served as some of our most reliable uh, forms of social support. And, the, you know, those of us who have been working from home with our animals, Lots of people just don't want to go back to work, um, you know, and they, or if they do, now they expect their, you know, employers to allow them to bring their animals with them because they just realize that this is a better, uh, you know, feels better for them, right? And their animals have played this central relational role. You know, that that literally is the big story here is that it's such an, uh, an expectation, you know, for those of you who are doing animal protection work to be expected to, you know, solve or figure out how to deal with challenges that are in this high level prevalence environment. And I think, you know, the biggest driver, one of the single biggest drivers that we know exists when we use kind of a one health framework. And what I mean by that is if you think of human health and animal health and environmental health being connected to one another, um, kind of our, our you know, at, at least in some form or fact, faction uh, intersectional with one another, things like poverty uh, in communities is a major driver of animal protection problems um, and environmental problems, right? So we see it's, they, they go hand in hand all over the world, by the way, not just here in the United States. You know, when we see degradation in any one of those kind of, um, you know, legs on the stool, um, the other legs get weak and fall over um, and sooner, sooner or later, right? So the, one of the best things we could do to protect animals is to protect the homes that they're in and the persons that, that live in them. You know, if we could in fact have healthy families, healthy homes, um, resources, Daniel, you talked about, you know, food deserts, but we have veterinary deserts. Um, so true, so, you know, so true. And veterinarians routinely set up their, offices not in communities that they perceive as having less affluence sure but in communities that they think have more affluence the reality is though there's just as many pets and our research shows us that persons in low-income communities love their animals just as much are there there's just as much attachment they play the very similar role even with many of our persons experiencing homelessness that's true and so um you know, that, that doesn't always mean they have exact resources that we would if we have, the, you know, kind of unlimited resources. But ironically, when we've studied even the health of, for example, dogs living with persons with, uh, you know, who are experiencing homelessness or housing insecure, 
many of those animals are actually doing pretty well. Um, yeah, you know, have, have, a, have a pretty good quality of life, particularly in relation to things like socialization, interaction with others, their own species, freedom and um, movement outside, exercise. You know, they may eat things they're not supposed to, but they probably in some ways have a more interesting and enriched life than the animal who's locked in their apartment eight hours. They're like, yeah, they're like village dogs, right? Like if you were to go to a, maybe a third world country and they have a village of animal, you know, people and then the, the dog kind of just kind of cruises around in the village and gets yeah. on social interaction and, yeah. You know, it's interesting that you brought that up. Um, I've just recently uh, joined an organization called the Comfort Dog Project in Uganda that uses unwanted dogs to support survivors of the Ugandan civil war. And, and these are dogs that would, would have been called street dogs. And what they're finding is that these dogs are, are fantastic strategies or tools for helping persons begin to want to take care of themselves. So they start to do things like become more self-regulated, um, are more responsible, follow schedules, and they're taught how to care for these dogs. They become the lifelong guardians of these street dogs as a way of improving their own mental health. That's awesome. That is yeah, awesome. It's a very, very interesting program. So can we talk a little bit more about why everybody needs to have more laws that are going to encompass the mental health evaluations of people, you know, because we're, we're having this discussion about all this mental health and regarding animals and what they may or may not do to them. But there's, you know, some dynamic where it's like, okay, the, the animal is going to benefit the person, but then you also have to outweigh, okay, is the benefit to the person outweighing the cost, the, the toll it's taking on the animal? And, and, and when do you when do you call it quits? When do you say, no, you, you can't have this animal anymore, but even though it may send you off the edge? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these are the complexities of these relationships and, it, and they're, you're bringing up some very important points. You know, one of the uh, elements of my work has been uh, designing and supervising the emotional support animal program at the University of Denver. So I literally meet, have met students, uh, you know, who are requesting to have an animal with them oh in the dorm. Oh my God, the most annoying thing in the world. Everybody has an emotional support animal. Basically Everybody. what you just said a few segments ago, actually, that there's yeah. so many animals here in the country and then well, people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would say that, you know, most people definitely view their animals as some of their most reliable relationships. But the reason why this ESA um, guidelines are, you know, relevant for persons like students, but also others as well. Um, you know, as, as universities are are pretty much, you know, I, I would say across the board, don't allow students to have pets. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of students that start to struggle while in college because they've grown up and live around animals, and animals are are critical part of their of their lives. So they have learned that they function better, even doing things like we have reason to believe that people, many people sleep better um, in the presence of having an animal, you know, living with them. And dorm rooms are under federal law considered a, your, that person's dwelling, their legal dwelling. 
And so students are eligible under federal law to be considered for an ESA or a prescribed animal under those circumstances. And throughout the time I've been doing this for quite a few years, it's really very rare that I find somebody who's just trying to be fraudulent. I'm usually meeting students who literally are almost heartbroken, homesick, that they don't have animals around them. Um, and I think a lot of us who have animals in our daily lives um, get that, right? Right? Would would you know? Would say yeah, yeah. Would say when I go on vacation. Oh man, I'm like, can I pet your dog, please? Yeah. I yeah, yeah. I think I mean they, and that that pays you know, plays out in things like dogs that literally are are you know rented out of hotel lobbies so that people business people on on you know business travel can walk a dog during their you know, stay in that hotel, it, you know, to me, that's kind of even more inappropriate in some ways than a, than an ESA. Emotional support animal prescriptions are also used with persons who are um, experiencing um, housing insecurity. And many of them don't want to go into a house if they're not allowed to bring their companion animal with them. And really the only thing, the only restriction is they have to have a diagnosis. They have to literally have a real life mental health diagnosis and we have to be able to identify what it is and 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 um you know that's what generates the letter what have become pretty problematic is that the internet does this kind of automates it and it isn't really reflective of a real evaluation or a real inquiry um into what's going on so that's kind of where this whole area has gotten a black eye you know but i just wanted to, to go back to what you just asked though that i think is really important which is um you know, under what circumstances should somebody not have an animal? Um, and, and how do we judge those kinds of things? And I, I think we would want to be, you know, building a, a strong dose of humility here in that, you know, large numbers of our, our persons living in our society that live with non-human animal companions um, have mental health problems. And, you know, many, I mean, literally we're talking about millions and millions, tens of millions, um, maybe, maybe even hundreds of millions in one form or another. Um, and so these are um, most of the time circumstances that are not necessarily problematic for the animal. Um, although there are other manifestations of this, things like persons who have difficulty with mobility might have an obese dog or, you know, somebody who, um, you know, is, is socially isolated, may not allow their animal to interact socially with other dogs, right? So there's lots of welfare issues that come up when humans have welfare issues. But to a large degree, the concept of equity and pet keeping, I think, is an important conversation. And remarkably, it goes really well most of the time, and or at least reasonably well. You know, we all might quibble over or um, disagree over how somebody else keeps their pets, but that's like, you know, telling them how to raise their children, right? Or, or something equally provocative, um, you know, like, let me tell you, you know, what you should do in the, your bedroom or what religion you should have and how to, you know, interact with your pet properly are all really can be provocative conversations. But I guess I, I'm always amazed by how well animals fit into most people's lives um, and how generally speaking, you know, how well that goes. And there, can there be a world that exists where 
certain crimes, certain violent crimes against animals or sexual abuse against animals or intentionally, you know, causing harm to animals, a world that exists, that it is both punitive and uh, both focused on mental health and, and correcting some of the behaviors that caused that in the first place. I, I, I feel like there has been some progress made in that world, but I, I don't sit on the, I'm not one that sits on either side, if that makes sense. So I'm not here today saying that we should never put somebody in jail for their actions, but I'm also uh, not saying that we should never focus on the, the mental health aspect. I, I think, and if you've, you know, if you, if you know me or if you've listened to some of the past episodes, we often talk about mental health being a component of some of these crimes. But I, I feel like in today's world that the criminal aspect, the, the enforcement or the, the, the jail piece of it um, is something that I think people are less inclined to want to see. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think you're bringing up uh, you know a touch point on the, in this issue that I think is a really interesting conversation and one that needs a lot of unpackaging. And I just want to encourage people to really take their time to learn about about this topic. Um, I get what you're saying, and I I think you know I'm always concerned that one of the elements of our work might somehow diminish. Are, or at least people would hear kind of the message I'm, I'm giving as let's not take animal cruelty as seriously as we, as we could or should. Um, and I'm not saying that. In fact, I, I think that would be unfortunate if we went backwards in, in that regard. What I would want to encourage persons to do, however, is be more introspective about what happens when somebody is engaged in a criminal justice matter and ask the question as to whether or not those actions, those activities improve the outcomes or make the outcomes worse. Are, is it better, you know, are we improving animal, outcome, animal protection outcomes or human outcomes? In, you know, in the work I did as a, as a sex offender evaluator, the, the treatment communities that worked with victims often didn't, um, I mean, this may be a crude way to put it, but struggled with the idea of wanting to have offenders get healthy. They just wanted to be angry. Um, you know, they wanted to punish them. We rightly see that. Yeah, we see that in right? our profession too, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. I, and I think it's kind of an, it's an understandable reaction, right? Especially if you experience that crime or you've observed it or you've met somebody who's observed it. It's especially personal. But if we're really working towards um, the best outcomes, really, if we really are interested in public safety um, outcomes, then we should be interested in what creates the best outcomes. And healthy people create um, fewer problems for animals. And you know, so so I think one of the going to your your question, Daniel, would be where when we talk about punishment, what part of that? Is for is is actually achieving that outcome, or is that punishment for some other purpose? Right? Is that a message? Do we believe it's a deterrent? Um, is it a form of retribution for those of us who are upset about the behavior? Is it for the animal? I mean, the new animal advocate laws, I think, are trying to suggest that the animals need victim advocates 
um, and and maybe they do. But what would the animal want, right? What would be the meaningful things that an animal would say matter to them? And and most of what I come to is that most of that would boil down to I don't want to be put in that situation again. I don't want that to continue to occur. I want to ensure, um, you know, non-recidivist or non or prevention mindedness, even if possible. And that that should, and in many cases, will cause us to rethink the benefit of some of the criminal justice strategies, which over and over and over have just not demonstrated good outcomes. And I, I think we're at that stage in this just today's world to be able to, to take an open look at, at those things. And honestly, I, I wish tonight we had more time to discuss it as these topics are fascinating. Uh, and just, we are, you know, on the prefaces, is that the right, how do you say prep it? Ashley, oh, don't, don't even try. Don't, don't even. Pref- Thank you. I wish Hildy was on the show. He could, yeah. he could butcher that, but we are, you know, animal welfare is tracked as far as animal law enforcement's tracked 30 years behind traditional law enforcement, et cetera. But I also think that we've also have been somewhat of a movement maker in, in some of the actions that we do that then flows into other avenues of the work that we do. And so having people like you having the program that you have uh, and the programs that you're working on is just an extremely valuable thing for our communities, our animals. And, and we're really grateful to be able to have uh, this topic today. And I think what we'd like to do is check back in in several months once the program's up and running and kind of get an overview on that as well. Uh, and I, yeah, if you're willing to do that, I'd be glad to come back and tell people how to find it and get registered or, or if, if they're interested in and kind of more of the specifics of the content of that, of that work. Uh, we do intend it to be a national platform so that you could take it from anywhere, you know, anywhere you have yes. access to internet. And um, that's our, our goal. And, you know, I want to say, uh, be, if we're kind of wrapping up here, however, that I don't want any of the things that I said to sound um, at all diminishing of the significance and importance of the work that you're doing, because having, you know, worked closely with a, a humane law enforcement team um, I have found them to be some of the most, you know, in, innovative and creative and caring individuals, the very persons that I hope are my neighbors um, and are placed routinely in circumstances where it's not clear what the, you know, exactly what the best strategy is. Um, and then you're figuring it out. And you know, we should be as a society applauding the effort, but also helping, you know, work towards equipping um, that whole area of animal protection work with all the tools we can develop, you know, I mean, and and not um, relying solely on the past or the history of law enforcement to define what it is, but really be thinking to the future where you know, how do we help you help our society rethink their relationship with other animals in the ways that make the most impact? And that and that's how I hope people have heard my contributions tonight. I think I'll speak for myself in this specific um, point or topic here that we or I and somebody well but I, I as an individual 
want to be able to soak up as much information and knowledge as I can. And I think others feel the same way. So hearing this perspective, if this is a first time for one of our listeners to know about mental health evaluations and or uh, different ways of, of handling situations, I think it opens up just so many different opportunities and, and things for them to look at. Uh, as we talked in the last episode about where you know, states rank in situations like that, I think it's important to know that you know, some of the people that may be working in the field now may have an opportunity to do more in their states and their communities by saying, hey, they're doing this in Colorado or they're doing this in Wisconsin or California and bringing it to the right people or teaming with the right people to make those changes in their community because it really only takes one. It's important for us as, you know, people in this industry to really, I think, fight for what we think is going to be the best outcome for our people and our animals that we live amongst. And, and that's what, what I think they'll take away from today's episode. And then as we get you back on to learn more about those programs, maybe, uh, maybe people would be open to joining those programs as well. Great. I, well, I hope so. And I want to just kind of echo what Dan is saying as well. And you know, I'm looking very forward to the program um, and hoping I can, you know, maybe participate in it. I think as a society, everybody is starting to recognize that mental health is playing a large role in our communities, um, in our criminal uh, line of work in general. Um, but now, you know, as, you know, we are bringing our animal welfare up to speed you know like like you said it, we're 30 years behind um so as we're bringing it up to speed i think it's reasonable for everybody to understand that it is an equally important part of our profession as it is for law enforcement in general um social services anything of that sort so i'm glad that there's somebody out there thinking of this and coming up with ways to do that and I appreciate your support of us in doing that. Yeah, thank you. Well, I, I'm definitely interested. You, you all, you know, each and every day have perspectives and are seeing the very things that we're trying to understand. And our best strategy is going to be to work together, you know, and it's an exciting, such an exciting time for this work, you know, with the new science of animal sentience and new understandings of animal well-being and how to support species-specific welfare, even the, you know, Academy Award uh, documentary, you know, um, Octopus, My Teacher, won winning the Academy Award, and then the producer, you know, which is a very, if you haven't seen it, a very interesting film, but mentioning that, you know, this is a new age where people and non-human animals can think about having relationships with one another that are better. You know, I botched this quote uh, several episodes ago, but I think it's a great quote to leave us on. And that's the greatness of a nation and its moral progress can be judged by the way its animals are treated. And, and I mean, it just speaks volumes where, you know, what we, how we interact with our community, how our animals interact with us and we interact with them really speaks a lot. You know, we, we want to be a place where people feel safe to be out and, and, can have a good time and not, you know, kind of look over their shoulder and worry about what's going on around them. So, well, thanks for all the work that you are both doing and, and your colleagues out in the field that are 
doing this um, very important work. Well, thanks for joining us. Again, we can't wait to get you back and talk about the progress uh, that, that you guys are making with ALDF and um, just knowing that there's more to be done out there and we have some great people doing it. So thanks for joining us today. And we want to thank everyone for listening. And as always, H.O. Bishop, <laughs> Humane <laughs> Officer Bishop, we want to say here on the Humane Roundup podcast, keep it humane, humane <laughs> better you did better there today you pause all of a sudden well because i, I want to get you ready we we should work on our <laughs> we got to work on our cadence <laughs>